The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, writing in the Times Literary Supplement, critic A.N. Wilson said, quote, Marion Turner has read Chaucer's work so intelligently that even those who thought they knew it all already will find themselves looking at Chaucer with completely fresh eyes. She evokes the times, the politics, the personalities of his contemporaries, and, above all, she gets inside this most ironical and brilliant of poets. The book was so richly enjoyable that, once I had finished, I started to read all over again. It is an absolute triumph. End quote. Chaucer, often called the father of English poetry, has gotten his first female biographer. She joins us today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, people. I'm Jack Wilson, continuing my string of being the luckiest podcast host in the world. Emma Smith, Samantha Rose Hill, Alice Kaplan, and Laura Morris, Jolene Hubbs, Honor Cargill Martin, Joel Warner, Diane Rayor. Could we have had a better month? I feel like we're on a hot streak, as if I opened a box of chocolates and found they're all winners. And the box has more depth than I thought. You remember that when you were a kid? <laughs> As an adult, I've grown to predict this a little bit, although I still get a little bit surprised. Pleasant surprise when you finish off that box of chocolates and realize there's another tray underneath. You just have to remove the one on top and you get a whole other, you double your pleasure, maybe triple it, depending on the box. Okay. Well, we're going to continue our greedy feast today with yet another delight. Marion Turner. She's been here before on the podcast to discuss her biography of The Wife of Bath. We got a million comments after that one. Listeners who love the episode, loved Marion Turner, loved her project of writing a biography of a fictional character. It is squarely within the interests of our listenership here at the History of Literature. And now we go back to Marion Turner for a little OG project of hers, so to speak, her biography of Geoffrey Chaucer. Is Chaucer a, a, a fuddy-duddy who's kind of hard to read and is in too many anthologies and on too many syllabi? Not in her hands. She'll make the case for understanding Chaucer and his poetry. And look, I know what you're thinking. Oh, oh yeah, we get it. We know what teachers do. Chaucer wrote about sex. There are naughty parts. You're going to say, well, he's not boring. He's actually racy. So look here, kitties, a bit of sugar to help you take your medicine. Well, that's not what we're doing exactly. We talk about that phenomenon as poor teachers try their best to keep their classroom attentive. But that's not really what we need to do as grown-ups. We're going to make the case for Chaucer as a dynamic, vibrant poet. 
because of his life and his project, because of his verse. This is someone to appreciate and who has a body of work to admire. And Marion Turner is the perfect person to help us do it. And because our box of chocolates has a secret tray, we're going to give you another morsel afterwards. Today is Juneteenth here in the States, which is a new federal holiday. It's not a new holiday. It's a newly federal holiday. Only a couple of years old. It means many employees get the day off now. For Juneteenth, it's a day to commemorate emancipation. But as we know, emancipation is significant of an event that that was. It was not as clean and immediate as the flipping of a light switch. There wasn't a, an off of darkness and then an on where everyone could see. It was a process. Juneteenth itself is a testament to that process. It doesn't just celebrate the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, which happened on the first day of 1863, but the ending of slavery in Texas on June 19, 1865, two and a half years later. And even that was not an off and an on moment. The battle for equality and against oppression has gone on much longer than that, continuing throughout the 20, 20th century and into the 21st. We're going to talk to Lee Saunders, the president of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, the union, about the Memphis Sanitation Workers' Strike of 1968, a pivotal moment in the labor movement, the civil rights movement, and in the life and death by murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's a new podcast hosted by Lee Saunders called I Am Story, which tells the story, the history and significance of this event. So that's what we have today. Lee Saunders is going to tell us all about the strike and about I Am Story, the podcast. But first, Marion Turner and Jeffrey Chaucer. All that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
Okay, joining me now is Marion Turner, the J.R.R. Tolkien Professor of English Language and Literature at the University of Oxford. She was here before to discuss her book, The Wife of Bath, a biography. She's here today to talk about her biography of Chaucer, called Chaucer, A European Life. Marion Turner, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me again. So let's start with Chaucer, born in 1342, died in 1400. Who was he? Where was he born? And maybe what did his parents do? Yeah, so Chaucer was born in London, so in an area known as Vintry Ward. So that so London was divided into different areas, and Vintry Ward was the the area of the vintners, the wine merchants. Mm, mm-hmm. So it was an area of London that bordered the river, the River Thames, and in fact, it was the area of London that had more immigrants living in it than any other area of London. So it was a place where people were speaking lots of different languages, different European languages, and he would have been you know mixing in the streets with all kinds of traders and bankers and you know, merchants. He would have been watching the ships coming in and then mm. going out again, you know, coming into London, laden with products from all over the world, you know, fabrics, spices from Indonesia, and then going out laden with with English wool. Mm. And so born in Vintry Ward, and his father was indeed a wine merchant. His mother was also a, a property owner. You know, she was a, a woman who w- was a woman of means and she inherited more property in the plague that struck when Chaucer was just a few years old. Mm, interesting. And there was, I read in your book that his grandmother's first husband was a pepperer, which I didn't even know that was a, a thing you could be, but uh, apparently they were <laughs> yeah. in the, the family was in the spice trade as well. Yeah, exactly. And so, and if you were a pepper, you didn't only sell pepper, you sold um, <laughs> other spices as well. But I mean, I think that's a, it's interesting to imagine Chaucer going into that area of London where all of these spices were being sold. And spice, the spice trade is so interesting because it reminds us of how globally connected the world was, even yeah. back in the 14th century, when it's easy to imagine that things were very insular and that people weren't aware of other parts of the world but that's not true at all especially for people in cities you know in an important city like London people were very aware of the kinds of products that were that you could only get through the import trade for Mm -hmm. example and certainly you know well-off people merchants as well as higher up aristocrats their lifestyles were really dependent on the import trade so Chaucer was always part of this very connected kind of world. And do we know what kind of childhood he had? Was he educated formally and, and or, or were books and poetry available to him? So a lot of what we what we know about Chaucer's childhood is really extrapolated from what was was the case for children of that time, if you mm-hmm. know what I mean. So mm-hmm. we don't have many specific records of his own childhood. We do have some records about things like what his parents were doing. So we know, for example, that his father worked in Southampton for for a period of time. So we know something, you know, those kinds of things. But we have to work out what was likely, what was available. A child like Chaucer would have gone to school and where he lived, there were, you know, there were several good grammar schools locally. And there, there were many books available. He would have been trained in, particularly in Latin, in classical texts, in fables, and had quite a reasonably kind of regimented life at school. But then when he was a teenager, he got a position as a page boy in a great household. So he went to be a page boy 
to Elizabeth, Countess of Ulster, who was married to Lionel of Antwerp, one of the, the sons of Edward III. So very important household. And in a great household like that, that was a place where young boys, young men would continue their education. You know, there were places of poetry and culture and also where people were riding and hunting and doing the kinds of things that the upper classes did at that time. Mm. So to get a boy like this, who what we would think of as a middle class boy, to get for someone like that to get into that household, they are continuing to have an education, a, a very privileged kind of education. He wasn't the kind of a lowly kind of servant, you know, a page boy would do some kind of errands and so on. But he was also there to continue, you know, to be part of that household, to be well dressed, mm. to learn the arts of being a young man, really. So his education was partly formal, partly in the schoolroom, but then partly in the great household where there were tutors, there were people who would be teaching him poetry. And he spent time later in other great households as well. So while anyone in Chaucer's in the kinds of positions that Chaucer was in would have a certain amount of education you know and anyone all educated men at that time were trilingual for example you'd be expected to know a certain amount of courtly poetry and so on but Chaucer was clearly extraordinary he was clearly also an autodidact he picked up more languages than other people he mm. obviously was far far better read you know and, and, and more widely read as well as reading very very deeply so I think we can see simply from the output that he was much, much more interested in this kind of educated world than most people were. Right. So he was speaking English, but do we know if he had English books to read? Was everything that he would be studying or every example of poetry that he had, would he have old English to look at? Or would he have strictly Latin? Or was there anything that was in the language that he was speaking at home and so on that made it into poetry? Or did that come with him and after him? Yeah, very good question. The literature and the text that he was reading were mainly Latin and French. Mm -hmm. So both those languages, really important languages of, of literature at this time. There was also English poetry. We've got an unbroken tradition of, of English poetry in the UK. People, educated men in Chaucer's day, were not reading old English, as in you know pre-conquest old English. They weren't reading that kind of thing. He would have been reading more recent examples of English. And so things like there were popular romances and satires and things like that in English. Hmm. But what there wasn't was the kind of courtly poetry. So mm. Chaucer's first you know, long poem, The Book of the Duchess, is very much in the French style of, of a poem, which in French was known as a dit amoureuse, a, a love song. And Chaucer and his audience would not, before Chaucer, have had poems like that in English. So it's not that he's by any means a first writer in English. It's not that other people aren't writing in English at this time, but they aren't writing these kinds of poems in English. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the sources that you're able to work with. You've hinted at this already, but do we have any letters or diaries from him or from his contemporaries who were describing encounters with him or anything like that? Or are we strictly limited to births and deaths and wills and court appearances and so forth? And then combined with his poetry, I guess we can kind of recreate some things that we think might have happened based on what he was writing about. Right. So it's something in between those two. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the great difficulty for a biographer when you're writing biography of someone from this era is that people weren't writing diaries and they weren't writing kind of emotional 
personal letters. Mm -hmm. So we don't have that kind of material. However, it's not the case that we just have very bald kind of documents. I mean, we actually have over 500 life records for Chaucer specifically, you know, Mm -hmm. as well as all the things that surround him. These are documents which are specifically about his life. So a huge amount, much more than we have for Shakespeare, for example, Mm. much, much more for Chaucer. Mm -hmm. Because he was a civil servant, because he had so many interesting jobs, you know, that he was working in the king's household, he was a diplomat, he was a prisoner of war, he was an MP, he was clerk of the king's works in charge of the king's buildings for some time, he was a customs officer at the Port of London. So, you know, this huge range of positions and jobs. And so what some of the different records tell us are it's a lot more than just the births and death. I write in my book about the fact that the, you know, the earliest life record that we have is about specific, very fashionable clothes being bought for him, for example. Later on in his life, a record that might seem to be very bald, for example, is the record of his travel to Italy. But, you know, it tells us because he's paid by the day, it tells us how long he was gone for. So we can mad- imagine you know, mm. how long does it take to ride there? What did he do when he was there? All those kinds of things, you know, when we look into the kinds of gifts that he's given, for example, and when they're given to him, those things tell us a lot that the people that are the people he's associated with in documents, the kinds of things that the complex politics that he's involved in. So I think the, the, the documents do reveal a lot more than one might expect. But what I found when I was writing the biography was that I felt that it was much much truer, I suppose, to the records to focus on thinking about his imagination than his emotions. Yeah. So I think because we don't have those kinds of personal letters and diaries, you know, I found that I couldn't be true to what I wanted to do as a biographer if I tried to think about the kind of but how did he really feel about his wife kind of questions. You know, I, mm-hmm. I just didn't feel the evidence was there. Whereas because we have so much evidence about you know, what he was reading, where he was going, what kind of art he was seeing, what kind of structures he was living in, what kind of things he was reading, all those kinds of things. I felt that I could do a lot to explore his imagination, his imaginative world, the imaginative world of his readers. Right. And indeed, I mean, I started with his childhood, but you do less of a chronology and more of a story through spaces and places. Yeah, absolutely. That was really important to me, the way that the book was structured. Mm -hmm. When I first started thinking about writing biography, I assumed it would be straightforward chronology. And, you know, I started to sketch it out, you know, beginning with his early years and going through the middle years and ending with the late years. (laughs) And, um, And I really decided that that structure was not very interesting to me. And so probably wouldn't be very interesting to my readers either. There's been a lot of biographies of Chaucer and I wanted to think, well, what can I do that's going to be a very different kind of biography that's going to yield new insights? And I thought it needed to be through a different kind of structure. Right. Although the biography, as you know, is roughly chronological, it's not strictly chronological because I wanted to be able to take a particular story you know, through rather than having to stop because something else happened at that moment that doesn't relate to the theme that I was talking about. And I found it very interesting to focus on spaces and places. So as you know, each chapter is a place or a space. Some are real ones, you know, Genoa, Navarre, Vintry Ward, you know, places that mattered in his life. Some are structures, things like the great household or the inn mm, mm-hmm. that aren't really the same today. We know what they are, but we don't really because they meant something quite different in Chaucer's era. And then some are really very conceptual, things like the threshold, for example. And thinking about these places and spaces, 
I think helped me to get inside the head, the to an extent, the subjectivity of someone who lived in such a different world, you know, to think about what it meant to live in a world where the private and the public were thought about quite differently, you know, where rooms and structures and spaces to inhabit were different and that that inevitably affects your imagination, the way you see the world, the metaphors you use. And I also found it fascinating just to to go to some of those actual places, you know, to try to follow mm. in mm-hmm. Chaucer's footsteps and see. I mean, you know, you can in so much of Europe, you can still go to places which are still very medieval, you know, where you can still see what Chaucer saw, experience the places that he went to and try to think about, you know, what it what it might have felt like to see those particular works of art to inhabit those particular buildings. I find it fascinating and it really has made me think that there is an advantage to this. I mean, you've done it out of necessity and it it makes a lot of sense because you don't have access to the emotional life of Chaucer because we don't have his diaries or letters where he's pouring out his soul or anything like that. But to say, well, he was in charge of the king's works he was essentially the king's falconer for a while. And so he's working with the birds and he's got jurisdiction over the tower. And he's here he is, like you said, as a child in this world of ships coming and going and laden with products from far off lands and, and that kind of thing. And it kind of made me think, you know, the other way we do biography can be kind of reductive because we might say, well, this person had an unhappy childhood, but it wasn't unhappy all the time, necessarily. You know, there might have been, mm. you know, moments of unhappiness, but also lots of moments of happiness and joy and excitement and learning and, and imagination. And and in some ways, you know, we might say so-and-so grew up in a city and we it's more about the city than it is about their particular relationship, but the thumb is on the scale so heavily when we talk about their relationship with their parents or their peers Mm. and that kind of thing, that it drowns out just the experience that they had being where they were. Yeah, and I think, as you say, that that idea of the thumb on the scale, if we focus too much on evidence that's come from, I suppose, one particular source, you Mm -hmm. know, the the way that we maybe see our childhoods when we're 12 might be quite different from the way we see them later. You know, so if someone relies on our own diary from that time, it might give a very skewed perspective, mightn't it? Um, I think the examples you were giving just now, I mean, they really get across, I think, just what an incredible life uh, Chaucer had. You know, all the different kinds of jobs he did and experiences that he had. And by is taking him as a, as a lens on those places and on that time it's I found it interesting to try to get that balance you know how much when you're writing a biography you know partly you're writing of course about this individual but you're also using that individual as a window onto a, a broader world right. you know, or many different overlapping worlds and I think that maybe by by take putting that focus on the imagination rather than the emotions that that maybe makes that that easier in a way. Right. Okay. So as we're running through these places, I can't resist asking you about the subtitle, A European Life. So what made Chaucer's life European as opposed to English? Yeah, and I suppose partly that title is a response to the common idea of Chaucer as father of English literature, Mm -hmm. father of English poetry, because I think that Sobriaque does give a very, a very a kind of false view, really, of who Chaucer was, both yeah, in terms of as right. soon as people start thinking of him as the father, the patriarch, they get a very particular idea of him. And I think right. it, it takes 
away actually from the fact that he was varied across his life. You know, he was experimental. He was edgy. He was, you know, he wasn't always this kind of whatever, I think, this yeah. sober patriarchal figure. He's locked in. He's probably into gardens and the pub. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and then the, the English literature, again, I think it's problematic. And I don't think it's true to the way that Chaucer would have thought about himself and his poetry. Chaucer read very little English poetry. It was a much less important and influential compared to Latin, French, Italian poetry. He's reading a whole swathe of Italian poetry before anyone else is in this country. Mm, mm -hmm. Huge amounts of Boccaccio, Dante, Petrarch. So really rooted in European context. And I think he was placing his poetry in conversation with poetry by, you know, many people that he knew and other people that he was reading, people who were writing in French, in Italian. And he traveled a great deal. I mean, people are often really surprised if he, they see the extent of his travels and they read about that in my book, you know, that he went to Italy at least twice. He went to Navarre in what is now northern Spain, but what was then an independent country and um, which had substantial Jewish and Muslim populations, many times to France, to the low countries, you know, very well traveled, very European, had many friends from different countries. So he did all that travel, but also at home as well. England, the part of England that he lived in anyway, you know, the, the courtly and the mercantile Englands rather than the, the kind of landed England, his Englands were very multilingual, multicultural in that there were, he was associating with people from many different countries. The courts were ruled over by queens from other countries. So first of all, Philippa of Hainaut, then Anne of Bohemia, who brought with them poets and friends and others in their trains who brought over different kinds of European culture. And then in in London as well, he was mixing with all kinds of people who were running the customs or the mint or Mm. the banks or involved in trading who came from different places. So his milieu was cosmopolitan. And I think it's really important for people to think about that when they're thinking about how literature in English evolved at that time. Right. And he was in the royal household, but he was also a member of a chaotic parliament. And I've got here a father visiting his daughter's nunnery. So he was really exposed to a lot of different places that are just full of excitement and vitality. Full of excitement, full of vitality, full of voices, you know, Mm, as well. I mm -hmm. think when we think about Chaucer's literary interests in thinking about lots of different voices, listening to people from different parts of society, writing in so many different forms and genres. He was very, very interested in foregrounding competing voices, voices that disagree with each other, voices that speak in different ways, as well as about different things. And it's obviously fascinating to think about that really quite radical interest that he has in breaking down the idea of a hegemonic voice and listen to lots of different voices, to think about that in the context of these worlds of the city of parliament and so on with which he was so familiar. Mm. Oh, that's a perfect segue. Let's take a quick break and then come back and turn to Chaucer's poetry.
Okay, we are back. So Marion Turner, what motivated him to write this verse that he did? Could he make money? Was it for prestige? Or was he attempting to bring English into a conversation with the other languages? in the? Or was it just this was he wanted to be a poet and this was his native tongue and it just seemed natural for him to write in that tongue? Do we have a sense of why he decided to write the Canterbury Tales? Well, <laughs> that's a big question, or many <laughs> questions. So I guess to start with what it's not, there's no evidence that he ever made any money from his writing. Mm, mm-hmm. you know, he always had incomes from other sources. He had day jobs. You know, he, wasn't, he wasn't making money from his writing. He could have written in other languages. You know, his friend and contemporary Gower wrote three long poems, one in English, one in French, one in Latin. That's a more obvious thing for a poet to do at this particular historical moment. Mm-hmm. You know, English is coming up, more people are writing English, but it's by no means the dominant language and particularly not for the more courtly kind of poetry with which Chaucer begins his, his poetic career. You know, the dream vision poems that he writes early on, the romance, that kind of thing. So I think that there's two questions, I suppose. Why does he write and then why does he write in English? And I think fundamentally he does, he writes because he can't not write. You know, you think about this man who's working all day and he describes this in the House of Fame. He's talking about kind of avatar of himself, a clear version of himself, a poet called Jeffrey who has writer's block, who's working as an accountant all day and then trudging home to his apartment in the evening, which is exactly Mm -hmm. how Chaucer's living at that time. And you imagine this person, you know, working all day, doing accounts, going home, it's dark. He's living in a room over the city walls. He's lighting the candles and he's writing his extraordinary poetry. It can only really have been because he was absolutely driven to do that. You know, he was utterly passionate about reading, about writing, about shaping verse and ideas. Wow. So his creativity needed a, an outlet. That was one thing that I didn't present yeah. as an option. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then I think, but you're also asking why in English. And mm, mm-hmm. and I think that this has to be speculative, um, uh, yeah, of course. I think that partly he was responding to the rise of the Italian vernacular. Mm, so in mm-hmm. Italy, lots of poets had been writing in Italian. And so that partly writing in English is not just a national, it's also an international gesture because he's right. kind of saying, well, can I do this in English as they have done in Tuscan? What about it? And it's also, I think, it's a way for him to be innovative because English verse was still a very, I suppose, a very plastic sort of verse because it was rougher, less formed than, say, French verse at this time. And so Chaucer then is able to innovate and he takes some of the Italian innovations in terms of what some of the Italian poets were doing with the poetic line, with verse forms, and he adapts them to invent his own poetic forms. He is the first person in English to, to write in what was to become the iambic pentameter, the ten-syllable five-stress line. He invents rhyme forms such as rhyme royal, which is a, a seven-line stanza, which is rhymed A, B, A, B, B, C, C, for example. So this is a way for him to take this verse form that had been more rudimentary and to be innovative, to do new things. And I think that really matters to him. You know, he wants to do new things you know a line that i like to emphasize is that chaucer was so newfangled that he invented the word newfangled 
<laughs> right. Well, it does make me glad that he wasn't writing for the market, that he wasn't thinking, I'm going to write a bestseller or anything like that, because he might have been quite a ways ahead of the audience or of ahead of any publishers or printers conception of the audience. And they might have forced him or steered him toward writing in Latin or writing in French or not doing as much innovation as he did. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting when you think about what happens once print comes in. So Chaucer, of course, is writing 70, 80 years before the advent of print. Yeah. I didn't even realize that. So there wouldn't have been what we would sort of understand as a publisher relationship that would have even been possible. Exactly. And we do exactly see that once print comes in, which is later in the 15th century, once Caxton sets up the first first English printing press at Westminster, he is choosing to publish certain kinds of texts. At that point, it's English text, but it's texts in particular dialects, it's certain kinds of genres, it's things that, it's things that he thinks will please the public. And Interestingly, in a way, we talk much more about the very obvious advantages of print in terms of much, much bigger circulation. We maybe think less about those downsides that you were just indicating, which is a growing commercialization and therefore often narrowing. Mm-hmm. Right. OK, so what did he have in mind for the Canterbury Tales? My recollection yes. was he had a much bigger version in mind or he had a, a big scheme And then what we have is kind of like the partial completion of it. So what do we know about what he wanted to do and what he ended up getting done? Yeah. So, well, it's interesting as to what he thought he was going to do and what Harry Bailey, the character in the Canterbury Tales, says (laughs) is going to happen. (laughs) That might be the bigger vision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So when Chaucer sets up the Canterbury Tales, I mean, what what he's trying to do here is put together a tale collection Right. So a group of different kinds of tales and the tale collection. So you you have some kind of conceit where you gather together a group of people, then they all tell different tales. It's a brilliant genre because it allows an author to show off lots of different skills and interests and voices. And other people had written on tale collections. So Boccaccio, one of Chaucer's great influences, had written the Decameron, which is Mm -hmm. a tale collection. He has his is complete. He has 10 tellers who each tell a tale, a tale a day for 10 days. So you end up with 100. You know, it's a, it's a perfect kind of mm-hmm, number, perfect collection. Mm-hmm. Chaucer's is much um, less complete than that. You know, he has his group of pilgrims, um, 20-something pilgrims, and Harry Bailey, the host of the Tabard Inn, where they meet in the, in the general prologue, he says, well, everyone's going to tell two tales on the way to Canterbury, and then everyone's going to tell two tales on the way back. Was that ever Chaucer's plan? I mean, it's hard to imagine a Canterbury Tales more than four times the length (laughs) of what we have now. (laughs) So who knows? Because, I mean, Chaucer is a master of incompletion. You know, many, many of his texts are incomplete or they're stagily incomplete. You know, they seem to be incomplete, but are they really? In You know, he likes leaving texts open I think you know leaving a big space for readers to go in and intervene so the Canterbury tales the the pilgrims don't get to Canterbury for instance they don't all get to tell one tale even Um, some tales are interrupted you know deliberately interrupted by other pilgrims who don't like them you know the tales seem to take on their own energy once they get going and you get all these interruptions contradictions people saying well this tale's a bit boring I don't want to hear any more of that you know why don't you tell something different things just some tales just kind of peter out 
would they have been finished if Chaucer had lived or had he just lost interest or did he want them to be unfinished? You know, these are all questions which are not just unanswerable, but in many cases, I think, you know, deliberately unanswerable that the, the text has been left open. Right. Right. Yes. But I think the key thing that he's trying to do in the Canterbury Tales is to make us listen to lots of different kinds of points of view. You know, at the beginning, the knight, the person of greatest social importance, he tells the first tale. And after that, the host says, OK, well, now the monk, the most socially important cleric, he should tell the next tale. But instead, the drunken miller interrupts and says, no, no, no. You know, I want to tell We've all heard people like this in the pub. You know, I want to tell the next tale. Um, I'm going to counter quite the knight's tale. And he's allowed to tell the story. And he tells this brilliant, funny, parodic story. But the key thing is that that's not just one moment. After that, we never go back to a social hierarchical way of, of telling tales. There is this sense that you know people butt in, people interrupt, people say, I've got a good tale, I'm going to counter that one. Sometimes people are asked to tell a tale, sometimes they refuse. You know, all kinds of different things happen. But we enter into what we would think of as a much more democratic rather than hierarchical way of thinking about who should speak, who should be listened to. Oh, I love that. I love the idea that it's kind of capturing how life works and that life kind of crowds into whatever the best laid plans are. And and you never know when someone's going to knock on the door and interrupt your plans for the day. And, and when you're in a group, there's always somebody who steps up to the mic, so to speak, and holds forth. You're not going in order and taking turns. But I also love what, what it says about Chaucer as an artist. The, the example I was thinking of is of contemporary one where we have this program uh, Saturday Night Live in the States with these sketch comic who put together these little sketches. And it's sort of famous for it'll have an idea and then it'll peter out, but the sketch keeps going and it's it's five minutes and, and maybe you got the point in the first minute or two. And everybody compares it with Monty Python, where they would just end a sketch and just say, you know, okay, this is going nowhere. Time for the next one. You know? <laughs> and now for something completely different. And and just move on and not subject the audience to, well, we started this, so it better have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And and in the end, you you maybe are not getting the stories of most interest if you feel like you have to carry through and go in a particular order. But if Chaucer is just saying, okay, I've got something even more interesting that could come out right now, right here, and here's this other voice that maybe it's time to give him or her a turn. Yeah, so you really focus then on a kind of audience response, don't you? When people kind of say, well, we don't want to hear any more of that. Yeah, we want to hear right. something like this. <laughs> we want to hear something different. And that's also interesting because, you know, one of the models for the Canterbury Tales is kind of poetry competitions that were held in various European mm. towns. Called, mm -hmm. They were called Puis, and they were, they were mercantile competitions. And that idea that, you know, you'll, you'll get shouted down, you know, so you do different things yeah, well, you're in that, right. that kind the hook of public will come out. performance <laughs> space. Yeah, and the, um, so I think that sense of this is a performance. And people in Chaucer's time, they were not usually sitting on their own silently reading Chaucer's poetry. You know, it would have been being read out, sometimes perhaps in an inn, sometimes in a courtly setting or a household, even if it's just a small group you know, someone reading with a group of friends and discussing it. But it was an oral form, a form to be spoken, to be listened to, to be talked about. You know, and I think that also goes back to, I mean, I, I love the example that you gave just now about, you know, you have your plans for the day and then someone kind of knocks on the door and something happens. Mm. In Chaucer's dream poem, The House of Fame, he's talking about the fact that 
he, the Jeffrey figure, can't write poems. He can't think about what to write about. And he's being berated by this guide figure, the eagle. And the eagle says to him, you know, your problem is that you go home and you just sit there, dumb as any stone, looking at your books, but of your very neighbours that dwell in almost at your door, you hear and neither this nor that. You know, you're not listening to your neighbours. You're not going to the doorway and talking to them and getting inspiration from the world around you. Mm. So Chaucer kind of juxtaposes this idea of just sitting silently with your books and going into a, a kind of communal space and listening to stories. Now, of course, Chaucer doesn't think that you shouldn't read books. You know, he's saying this in a poem that's fundamentally rooted in Virgil, in Ovid, in Dante. But I think he's saying that you need both. You know, it's not enough just to read the old authors. You know, you also have to be rooted in the contemporary and in and in voices that you actually hear around you. Right. So that brings me to sort of the next question I wanted to ask, which is about his attitudes towards sex and and his attitudes just in general toward, I guess I'll call it earthiness, uh, bodily functions and death and disease and in some ways, it seems like it's a perfect reflection of his era. They're living among horses and pigs and so on, and, and you see them giving birth and being slaughtered and, and the sort of teeming life that is all around. Also, of course, the diseases and the you're just sort of living a less sanitized version of what we might expect to in our, our own world. Was that how innovative was that? Was he sort of a bad boy of literature, so to speak, or was he introducing this into poetry? I'm imagining that he maybe was a lot earthier than what a uh, member of the royal household might be expected to produce. No, I actually don't think so. Um, mm. People in the Middle Ages were really open about talking about sex, writing about sex, hearing about sex. I think, I mean, it's interesting when you look at Chaucer's text, they get censored in later centuries. You know, once uh, you get into, say, the yeah. 18th century, a lot of people are very uncomfortable the way that some of his characters are talking openly about genitalia, about the body, about having sex in trees and farting out windows and the wife of Bath talking about her own genitals a lot, all that kind of thing was really not very controversial in the Middle Ages. Right, but as I say, right. in later centuries, people don't like that. Even, you know, so the... The same people that are reading romances, you know, rom like texts that elevate love and make it idealized. Those people are also reading Fabio, which are very bawdy stories. Mm -hmm. um, th they were particularly a French form. Um, there's also lots of Italian ones, but, but there's lots of those kinds of texts. So I think that in a way, because Chaucer is so famous, and, you know, once you get into the 20th century, people were fascinated by particularly the bawdy stories. And that's yeah. really inflected how people think about Chaucer today. So they focus more on that aspect of Chaucer. You, you know, when a lot of people say at school, for example, they'll know that Chaucer wrote a text in which people have sex in a tree or, yeah. you know, or they'll know they'll know that or they'll know the farting out of the window in the Miller's Tale or you know, those kinds of things. But they won't know that Chaucer wrote a saint's life tale, the second nun's tale. They won't know that he translated Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. They won't know that he wrote the Parsons tale, which is a translation of a penitential tract about sin. They won't know that he wrote a scientific work, the treatise on the astrolabe. So I think there's more focus, uh, there's a, a fake focus on, on sex as if it took up more of his oeuvre than it actually 
did. Mm. And so you get this like Pasolini's film of the Canterbury Tales in the 1970s, you know, which only focuses on sex. It's an absolute kind of travesty of Chaucer's aesthetic vision, which is all about variety. Um, but I think it's also interesting that when you were talking about just that that sense of earthiness and the body and so on, you also mentioned death and disease. And, you know, we haven't talked about the fact that Chaucer is writing in the wake of the Black Death. Yeah. So a slightly right. different point, but I think just a really important thing to remember that he was writing at a time when people were thinking about death in a very specific way. Um, that So when Chaucer was about six, the Black Death hit, wiped out maybe a third, maybe a half of the population equally affecting the young as well as the old. So you know, this is a pandemic on a scale that we cannot imagine, you know, I mean, absolutely horrific. And Chaucer, he talks a bit about the plague specifically, for example, in the in the Pardoner's Tale. He doesn't talk about, you know, an enormous amount compared to some of his contemporaries. But the effect of the plague certainly was very important in his life, you know, so after the plague that we do get a lot more social mobility because, you know, jobs were were plentiful, labour was scarce. So there's all kinds of interesting kind of background effects of the plague on 14th century life. Hmm. I wonder about the extent to which we've done Chaucer a disservice by focusing on the body and the naughty. And I was reading an interview with Paul McCartney where he said, yeah, I had this teacher who was giving us Chaucer and he would show us all the naughty parts. And, you know, Chaucer was my man. And it kind of, I wonder if teachers were doing that because here's Chaucer, the language is going to be a little bit difficult for you, but it's on the curriculum. But guess what? I can keep the students interested by they'll be surprised by the farting out the window and the sex that's in here and that kind of thing. And it's great that it opens this door to a discussion of, well, what were the mores of his time and what do we restrict today and so on. But a lot of what I'm interested in reading of Chaucer is the stuff that you described after that, the other things that he wrote about. Because Mm -hmm. for me, it is kind of a a little bit juvenile to sort of say, well, I'm going to read a poet and going to be all about being transgressive and breaking some rules and so on. But I'm interested in what he wrote about religion or what he wrote about the other topics of his day. Yeah, I I mean, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that, I mean, teachers just they have a hard job, you know, and I think mm-hmm. it's ever mm-hmm. harder these days when there's always lots of kids who love books, but there's also, there's a lot of kids that it's harder to get into any books these days because, yeah. you know, the power of the screen, the power of social media, the attention, all those kinds of things. So anything that teachers can do to interest students, you know, I am right yep. behind them. Yeah, right. And I think, you know, what you ideally want is, you use whatever you have to use as a hook, right? Mm-hmm. To hook people in, you know, look, and, and to surprise them, you know, to say, look, you might not think this is in this old text, but there's this kind of stuff. This isn't what you're expecting. It's interesting. It's funny. And then, of course, once you've hooked them in, you try and say, and look at this other amazing thing that he wrote and look at what he's doing with poetic form and look at actually the, the complexity of what he's suggesting, you know, that this is a small part of a much more complex idea that he's trying to, to develop. So I think you can take any part and lead people on, but it is on to different things. But it is a real shame if people get a one note view of Chaucer because uh, you know, he's so varied, so diverse in what he can do. Mm. So... Here's a a big question as we head toward the end here. 
Can you identify what he means to the English language or English literature? But I guess maybe let's start with the language. Is there a a but-for scenario? Can we say that he permanently altered the language in some way? Did he give it credibility along along the lines of Dante giving the vernacular a credibility as a language that was worth this worthy epic could be using the language of Italian instead of Latin? I mean, I think it's, I think we have to be careful about making the two great claims um, for, for one individual mm-hmm. in that he's part of a movement. So that when you look at what's happening in the late 14th century, you start to get an upsurge of, say, scientific, medical text in English. You start to get English being used more in the law courts, in the civil service. And you also get more poets writing in English. So as well as Chaucer, you've got Gower, you've got Langland's Piers Plowman, you've got Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and the other poems by that amazing anonymous poet. You have named women starting to write in English, Julian of Norwich, then to the 15th century, Marjorie Kemp. I mean, mean, so there's a whole lot of people contributing to the development of English. And I think, you know, I mean, Chesterton ridiculously wrote in the early 20th century, you know, we'd all be speaking in French if it weren't for Chaucer. Mm. And so I think that, you know, that's just not at all true. English was starting to march on and it was, we start to see the beginning of its kind of colonial journeys as well. You know, so in Chaucer's lifetime in Ireland, the English language starts to be privileged, for example, in, in 1366. So I think there's, I think he's part of a movement. I think that, you know, my own view is that he is the best and most prolific poet at that time. And he certainly becomes the most influential, you know, mm, so that mm-hmm. the kind of poems that he writes are then imitated, developed by many 15th century poets. And then in the 16th century, he goes on being extraordinarily influential on all the writers across that century, including Shakespeare and his and his contemporaries. So I think that I wouldn't make a claim of, you know, without Chaucer, English poetry wouldn't have been great. I wouldn't say that. But I suppose I would say that he wrote so much and he was so influential that I think it would be true to say it had more credibility as a varied poetic language you, you certainly he he did that he gave it a much more solid basis but mm. i think we do also have to give credit to his contemporaries too right so i was planning to do an episode on chaucer years ago and i mean the history of literature podcast it's sort of an embarrassment that, it, that it's taken me this long to do an episode on chaucer <laughs> but one of the reasons that i stopped was i didn't know exactly what to make of the sexual assault allegations and i couldn't separate the the possibles from the probables and i felt like it was important to discuss it i know it's been a an important topic recently especially and mm. i'm glad to have an expert here so what do we know about the allegations against him and facts underneath them. Yeah. So a woman called Cecily Champagne released Chaucer from further actions pertaining to her raptus. That's the mm. word that she that, that is used in the document. And so for a long time, until last year, there was a lot of debate about what this meant. So there was, you know, not recently, but there was an older kind of group of critics who said, essentially, you know, he couldn't have committed rape because he was such a good guy, you know, said Mm. things like, well, look at all the important friends who supported him, who were his witnesses. Look at all the nice things he said about women. You know, he couldn't possibly have been have been a rapist. And there were also people who said, you know, perfectly understandably, 
well, let's look at what this word means and looked at the context in which it means abduction rather than sexual rape, for example. Mm. And then there were other scholars who were looking at that and were saying, yes, but in this context, they thought it was sexual rape. And there were also some scholars who were saying, well, we just shouldn't read his work because he, he was a rapist. This proves he was a rapist. So you mm-hmm. get there were extreme views and there were also a range of views in between. And then last year, some further documents were found in the National Archives by Sebastian Sebecki and Ewan Roger. And these documents show that Cecily Champagne and Chaucer were on the same side in this case yeah. and that this was a labour dispute. So what seems to have happened is that Cecily Champagne left her employer to go and work for Chaucer and was saying they were on the same side, working with the same solicitor, saying to her employer, I was not forcibly taken away from your service. So it does seem now, it does seem that this case is not a case of sexual rape. It's a case in which it's a labour dispute and Chaucer was not the antagonist of Cecily Champagne. So there's obviously all kinds of interesting things about that. And certainly the people who found those documents are looking for more documents, you know, that to, to find out you know, more about this case. I mean, I would say a couple of just further comments that, I mean, first of all, I think it's really important that this doesn't you know, stop us thinking about issues to do with rape. I mean, Chaucer, as I've, mm, Chaucer mm-hmm. wrote an extraordinarily interesting story about rape, The Wife of Bath's Tale, as, I, as I've talked about before. And it's you know really important still to think about that crucial issue and power imbalances in, in his society and, and in all societies. I also think that it's really interesting that this case then shines a light on female service, female domestic service, you know, that what the kinds of women that w- were in his household or in different households, what were their lives like? And also offers a, a window for thinking about that aspect of female of female experience. And I suppose finally, this is a great example of how extremely exciting the world of Chaucer and 14th century studies still is, and that yeah. we are making new discoveries all the time. You know, there are there are new things to find. There's a lot of things in the archives that have not been read, which is, you know, is great. Right. So often when I'm talking to a biographer, I'll I'll ask whether they wound up liking their subject more or less after spending so much time with studying him or her. But I'm not sure it's fair to ask you whether you liked Chaucer or not, because you're not talking about his emotional life. But I'm wondering, did you like his poetry more after scrutinizing his life and times? Did you find that the poetry was enriched and capable of giving you new insights? Or does learning so much about him and his era reduce the mystery and shrink the poetry somewhat? Oh, absolutely the former. I mean, it mm. just enhances it and enhances it. You know, once yeah. once I was reading those, you know, the, the, the images of caged birds and thinking about what he'd read in Boethius and about the nunnery as a cage and about his own daughter as a nun. I mean, and just the expansive way in which I felt I was then able to think about these poems in all different aspects of his of his thought worlds and to to place them into these different imaginative contexts to imagine him looking at Giotto's and looking at um, experiments yeah. in artistic perspective and think about how that might have connected with the way he was thinking about depicting perspective in literature. I mean, I 
I just found, I mean, every time I read anything of Chaucer's, you know, many, many you know, those poems I've read <laughs> hundreds of times, there's always more things because they are extraordinarily rich. So the poetry keeps up. You you see yeah, something that he was exposed to and you learn more about it and then you realize that he was incorporating that into his poetry or it was sort of influencing or coloring it somehow. Yeah, I mean, that and and just I think he's doing so many things that you keep spotting mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. more connections, more resonances, because this is and that's the case with all really great literature, isn't it? That you, that you do, you keep seeing more. It keeps speaking to you in different ways. <sighs> the book is Chaucer, A European Life. Marion Turner, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Finally today, Lee Saunders joins us for a discussion of the moment when black sanitation workers in Memphis, having been mistreated by their employers, had had enough and how their act of protest led to great societal change. It's a pivotal moment in American history, and a new podcast tells the story. Lee Saunders is the president of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, AFL-CIO, with 1.4 million members in communities across the nation, serving in hundreds of different occupations, such as nurses, corrections officers, child care providers, and sanitation workers. He's here today to discuss a new podcast called I Am Story, which retells the story of a labor struggle that rocked a city and altered our history. Lee Saunders, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. So let's go back to Memphis in 1968. What exactly was the Memphis sanitation strike? Well, it was a strike of 1,300 African-American workers who had been uh, trying to sit down with the city and negotiate wages and benefits and working conditions. Uh, they had been trying to do this for quite a while, and they wanted their union, Local 1733 of AFSCME, to represent them uh, in those negotiations. They essentially wanted a seat at the table. Mm. They believed that they were being treated unfairly for a variety of reasons. Wages were low, benefits were low, safety and health conditions were horrible, and they demanded that the city treat them as men and sit down and talk with them about their working conditions. What really started the actual strike was the fact that two sanitation workers were actually killed uh, in a truck. They were trying to get out of bad weather, and they went into the back of the truck, and the system faltered, and it actually closed on them and uh, crushed them to death. This was an area that they had been telling the city for a long time that the trucks were hazardous, and there were many problems associated with the mechanisms in those trucks, and the city ignored them completely. That was the straw that broke the camel's back, and, and they decided collectively that they were going to go on strike, and uh, they were going to demand that their voices be heard. And just remember now that this is 1967, 1968 right. in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And 1,300 African-American sanitation workers deciding that they had to take this action so they could improve their work lives. 
Right. So that was going to be my next question. I know striking is never easy, but at times it's more difficult or riskier than others. What was the context that the black workers were facing in the Memphis of 1968? What potential dangers did they face in deciding to strike? Well, I think we have to be honest and say that they were dealing with a racist government. They were dealing with a racist mayor who believed that workers, all workers shouldn't have a voice, but especially African-American workers shouldn't have a voice, Mm -hmm. uh, and they should just do what they were told. And the workers said, enough is enough, and we aren't taking it anymore. And uh, they decided to go out on strike and make their voices heard. It was a shame back then, because maybe some of this would not have occurred if, in fact, management and the mayor would have treated these men like men, mm-hmm. but they didn't. They treated them like, like slaves, performing duties that they could not question, that they could not provide input in as far as improving their work lives. And uh, the result of it was that after many years of this treatment, those workers decided to make the choice of going on strike. And that's exactly what happened under very serious conditions in Memphis. But it opened up the eyes. This strike opened up the eyes of the country. And Dr. King Mm -hmm. saw what was going on there, and he decided to travel there to support those striking workers. Right. And a lot of people, they might not know or might not remember that he played a critical role in the strike, but the strike also played a critical role in his story and in his death, in fact. Well, if you recall, he was in the middle of planning the Poor People's Campaign. Mm -hmm. And he actually had some advisors who told him that he shouldn't engage in helping these striking workers. But Dr. King understood that there was a direct connection between civil rights and economic rights and labor rights. And he believed that with everything that he preached and everything that he talked about uh, across the country, that this was a moment in time where it would be irresponsible of him not to participate and support in this effort and support these striking workers. So he made the decision to travel to Memphis, Tennessee, and everyone knows the story. I mean, he traveled to Memphis, he participated in marches, and he ultimately gave his life in support of those sanitation workers. Mm. And this, just to kind of paint the picture a little bit, he had some some protests that were postponed by snowstorms. And, and meanwhile, the I mean, for a, a sanitation strike is a pretty dramatic strike. There's trash piling up in the streets and the city is getting desperate. At the same time, they hired some strike breakers and violence started breaking out. And it really was a, a tumultuous period. It was a very tumultuous period, although our members were committed to having a peaceful strike. Mm-hmm. But the city decided that they would send in law enforcement and the police. Members were gassed. Those sanitation workers were gassed when they were trying to conduct a peaceful march. And the city was not interested in hearing out their concerns. They were not interested in providing those workers a seat at the table. And it just goes to show you how those workers were really feeling. They didn't believe that they had an option. This was the ultimate decision that they made as far as going out on strike. And that's not an easy thing to do uh, because you aren't getting your wages. This was an illegal strike, but they had to stand up and say that enough was enough. And if you recall, they developed the slogan, I am a man. And that Mm -hmm. slogan stays with us and sticks with us today. Mm -hmm. 
How were the unions able to be involved? Was there a strong national union? Were there local chapters that could support? Or was that just getting started? No, it it had been started because of the problems that the workers uh, were experiencing in Memphis. And there was a national union, which I'm the president of. And at that time, we were around uh, 350,000 strong, Mm -hmm. representing local government workers, state government workers. And they wanted to have a local union under the AFSCME umbrella. So they had been working with some organizers there. But when the strike took place, we sent people immediately down. The National Union sent people immediately down to support those strikers' efforts and try to develop some kind of relationship with the city and with management to resolve the situation. But it was clear that the way that you resolve the situation is to give those workers a voice, a mm. voice on the job so they could determine their wages and benefits and working conditions. So when the strike took place, we were involved immediately and we provided our resources and talked to our allies across the country and saying this was a pivotal moment in the country's history and people needed to take a stand. Right. Okay, so let's talk about the podcast, I Am Story. What can we expect from the episodes? Well, we just wanted to recreate what happened back Mm -hmm. then, 55 years ago. I mean, I strongly believe that in order for you to know where you're going, you've got to understand where you've come from. Uh, And that is a part of our history that we can never forget. And it was a struggle that we can never forget because the sanitation workers risked their lives every single day. They were threatened. Their families were threatened. Dr. King ultimately was killed, assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. So those workers could have a voice on the job and a seat at the table. And so we're recreating that and saying that this is our history and we can't ignore our history. Although you've got people in some states across the country that are saying that we shouldn't report or we shouldn't learn or students shouldn't learn about the history of this country. That's Mm -hmm. an important part of our history. And so we wanted to have the podcast uh, to talk to the people that were directly involved there. Uh, So we talked with Bill Lucy, who was one of the staffers from the National Union that went there and uh, was there the whole time of the strike. We talked with Reverend Jim Lawson, who was a minister there Mm -hmm. uh, in in Memphis, and he coordinated the faith-based community in supporting the strike and was very instrumental in getting Dr. King to travel to Memphis because they were very good friends. And Reverend Lawson understood that this was a pivotal moment. This was an important moment. And Dr. King had to be involved in this. So we worked with the religious communities. We've talked during the podcast with actual strikers who were still living so they could tell their story. We talked to their family members. Uh, We talked to historians who have written about this strike uh, just so we could recreate what happened and put it in a podcast. And I think there are five segments of the podcast so people can listen and they can understand what exactly was happening then, but also make the connection to what's happening now. And even though that strike is no longer and that we settled that strike and the sanitation workers were successful, there are still problems in Memphis, Tennessee, but there's still problems across the country as far as workers being treated with dignity and respect and having that seat at the table. Mm-hmm. How did the sanitation strike alter the course of American history? I know we need to remember what happened and that it helps us to understand it in order to understand some of the things we're facing today, but did it have a sort of legacy or was it something that happened and then uh, was covered up, you know, disappeared? 
of what we're talking about it now. And this is 55 years later, so it has a legacy. And we need to, once again, talk about the struggles that took place in this country and how we dealt with those struggles and the victories that we've had and the defeats uh, that we've had. But people have got to understand and know the importance of these workers going out on strike and doing the kinds of things that they did to make their voices heard. We've still got to do that. We're still struggling. As a matter of fact, even though we've had successes, there are still inequities in Memphis today. If you look across the country, black workers continue to earn about 20% less than white workers are making. Black workers are more prone to being injured on the job. So we've still got the work cut out ahead of us. And we're committed to doing that work with our partners all across the country. Well, it is a dramatic story and an important story. And I think the the podcast episodes that I've listened to so far are just wonderful and and exciting and, and thrilling and very informative. President Lee Saunders, president of the AFS CME and host of the podcast, I Am Story. Thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Lee Saunders for joining me. Do check out his fascinating podcast, I Am Story, wherever you get your podcasts. There are interviews, archival audio, and more. It's a wonderful show. And my thanks to Marion Turner for returning to the History of Literature podcast. Do check out her biographies of both Chaucer and The Wife of Bath. Those are books that every bibliophile, every poetry fan, every literature lover should have on their shelf. First, first you have it on your porch, wrapped in a box. You're excited to open. Then you have it on your nightstand so you can devour it before you go to sleep each night. And then you have it on your shelf where it waits for the next read or that moment where you hand it to a friend and say, here you are. I enjoyed this and now... It's your turn. Speaking of which, I enjoyed being here with you today, dear listeners, and now it's your turn to go out and read and live and then come back for more. Or, I guess you could also dig into the archives. Or you can wait until next Thursday when the History of Literature podcast will deliver you another humble offering. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.